Welcome to Jesus is the Voice of Truth. Cultivating a lifestyle of generosity will transform every aspect of your life, marriage, family, relationship, and your finances. Join Michael Montoya from Jesus for Life Ministries as he reveals the truth to experiencing God's abundance and grace every day. Welcome to Jesus is the Voice of Truth. This is Michael Montoya. I am a teacher and evangelist of the Voice of Truth, Jesus Christ. I am presenting you today Encouragement to Faith, Part 2. So you can turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20, and we'll start. It is hard for our Western minds to understand what was really so unusual in the faith of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. As recorded in the next three verses, Isaac, for instance, achieved a place in the faith's hall of fame because he invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. What was so remarkable about that? Before the children were born, the Lord announced to Rebekah that the boys would become the source of two nations and that the older Esau would serve the younger Jacob. Esau was Isaac's favorite and the elder son would normally have received the best portion from his father. But Rebekah and Jacob deceived Isaac, whose sight was now poor, into giving the blessing to Jacob. When the plot was exposed, Isaac trembled violently because he remembered God's word that the older would serve the younger. And in spite of his favoritism for Esau, he realized that God's overruling of his natural weakness must stand. Chapter 11, verse 21. There were many inglorious chapters in the life of Jacob, but he is honored as a hero of faith nevertheless. His character improved by age, and he died in the burst of glory. When he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, he crossed his hands so the older son's blessing fell on Ephraim the younger. In spite of Joseph's protest, Jacob insisted that the blessing must stand because this was the order which God had specified. Though his physical sight was dim, his spiritual sight was king. The closing scene of Jacob's life begins him worshiping while leaning on top of his staff. Thus it is with our aged patriarch. The supplanting, the bargain making, the cunning, the management, the shifting, the shuffling, the unbelieving, selfish fears, all those dark clouds of nature and of earth seem to have passed away and... He comes forth in all calm evolutions of faith to bestow blessing and impart dignities in that holy skillfulness which communion with God can alone impart. Turn to chapter 11, 22. Joseph's faith was also strong when he was dying. He believed God's promise that he would deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt. Faith enabled him to picture the exodus already. It was so sure to him that he instructed his son to carry his bones with them to the burial in Canaan. Turn to chapter 11, verse 23. It is really the faith of his parents and not of Moses himself that is in this view here. As they looked at their baby, they saw that he was a beautiful child, but it was more than physical beauty. They saw that he was a child of destiny, one whom God had marked out for special work. Their faith that God's purpose would be worked out gave them courage to defy the king's command and to hide the child for three months. Chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses himself was able to make several noble renunciations. Though reared 
in the luxury of Egypt's palace and assured of all things that men strive for, he learned that it is not the possession of things, but the forsaking of them that brings rest. First of all, he refused Egypt's fame. He was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter and therefore assured of a place in social elite, perhaps even as Pharaoh's successor. But he had been born of better blood, a member of God's chosen earthly people. From this nobility, he could not step down to Egypt's royalty. In his adult years, he made his choice. He would not hide his true nationality to win a few short years of earthly fame. The results, instead of occupying a line of two of hieroglyphics of some obscure tomb, he is memorialized in God's eternal book. Instead of being found in a museum as an Egyptian mummy, he is famous as a man of God. Chapter 11, 25, second, he repudiated the pleasures of Egypt. Humbled association with the suffering people of God meant more to him than the transient gratification of his appetites. The privileges of sharing ill treatment with his own people was greater pleasure to him than dissipation in Pharaoh's court. Turn to chapter 11, 26, third, he turned his back on the treasures in Egypt. Faith enabled him to see that the fabulous treasure houses of Egypt were worthless in the light of eternity. So he chose to suffer the same kind of reproach as the Messiah would later suffer. Loyalty to God and love for his people were valued by him more than the combined wealth of Pharaoh. He knew that these were the things that would count one minute after he died. Turn your Bibles to chapter eleven twenty-seven. Then he also renounced Egypt's monarch. Emboldened by faith, he made his exit from the land of bondage, careless of the wrath of the king. It was a clear break from the politics of this world. He feared Pharaoh so little because he feared God so much. He kept his eyes on the blessed and only one, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immorality, dwelling in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honored and everlasting power. Amen. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Turn your Bibles to 11.28. Finally, he rejected Egypt's religion. By instituting the Passover, by sprinkling the blood, he emphatically separated himself from Egyptian idolatry forever. He flung down the gauntlet in defiance of the religious establishment. For him, salvation was though the blood of the Lamb, not through the waters of the Nile. As a result, the firstborn of Israel were spared, while the firstborn of Egypt were slayed by the destroyer. Chapter 11, verse 29. At first, the Red Sea seemed to spell disaster to the Hebrew refugees. With the enemy in hot pursuit, they seemed to be trapped. But in obedience to God's word, they moved forward and the waters departed. The Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land. And the waters were divided, Exodus 14:21. When the Egyptians tried to follow, their chariot wheels became clogged. The waters returned to their usual place, and the Pharaoh's armies were drowned. Thus the Red Sea became a causeway of deliverance to Israel, but a dead end of doom to the Egyptians. Let's turn to chapter 11:30. The walled city of Jericho was the first military objective in the conquest of Canaan. Reason would claim that. Such a huge fortress could be taken down only by superior forces. 
But faith's methods are different. God uses strategies that appear foolish to men in order to accomplish his purpose. He told the people to encircle the city for seven days. On the seventh day, they were to march around it seven times. The priests were to give a loud blast on their trumpets. The people were to shout and the walls would fall. Military experts would write off the methods as ludicrous, but it worked. The weapons of spiritual warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Let's turn to chapter 11, verses 31. We do not know when the harlot Rahab became a worshiper of Jehovah, but it is clear that she did. She abandoned the false religion of Canaan to become a Jewish woman. Her faith precedes a rigorous test when the spies came to her home. Would she be loyal to her country? And her fellow countrymen, or would she be true to the Lord? She decided to stand on the Lord's side, even if it meant betraying her country. By giving friendly welcome to the spies, she and her family were spared, while her disobedient neighbors perished. Let's turn to chapter 11, verse 32. At this point, we ask a rhetorical question, and what more shall I say? God has given an imposing list of men and women who demonstrated faith and endurance in the Old Testament. How many more must he give in order to make his point? God has not ran out of examples. There was Gideon, whose army was reduced from 32,000 to 300. First the timid were sent home, then those who thought too much of their own comfort. With a hard core of true disciples, Gideon routed the Midianites. Then there was Barak. When he called to lead Israel to battle against the Canaanites, he agreed only on the condition that Deborah would go with him. In spite of this coward facet in his character, God saw real trust and lists him among the men of faith. Samson was another man of obvious weakness. Yes, in spite of that, God detected the faith that enabled him to kill a young lion with his hands to destroy 30 Philistines in Ashkelon, to slay 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, to carry away the gates of Gaza, and to finally pull down the temple of Dagon and slay more Philistines in his death than he had in his life. Though an illegitimate child, Jephthah rose to be the deliverer of his people from the Ammonites. He illustrated the truth that faith enabled a man to rise above his birth and environment and make history for God. The faith of David shines out in his contest with Goliath and in his noble behavior towards Saul, in his capture of Zion, and in the countless other episodes. In his Psalms, we find his faith crystallized in penitence, praise, and prophecy. Samuel, the last of Israel's judges and her first prophet. He was God's man for the nation at the time when the priesthood was marked by spiritual bankruptcy. He was one of the greatest leaders in Israel's history. And to this list, the prophets, a noble band of God's spokesmen, men who were embodied consciences who would rather die than lie, who would rather go to heaven with a good conscience to stay on the earth with a bad one. Turn to chapter 11, verse 33. We now turn to naming people of faith to citing their exploits. They subdued kingdoms. Here our minds turn to Joshua, to the judges, who were really military leaders, to David and to others. They worked righteously. Kings like Solomon, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah and Josiah are remembered for reigns 
which though not perfect, were characterized by righteousness. They obtained promises. This may mean that God made covenants with them, as in the case of Abraham, Moses, David, and Solomon. Or it may mean that they received the fulfillment of promises, thus demonstrating the truth of God's word. They stopped the mouth of lions. Daniel is an outstanding example from here. Daniel 6.22 But we should also remember Samson. Judges 14, 5, and 6, and David, 1 Samuel, chapter 17, verses 34 and 35. Let's turn to chapter 11, 34. They quenched the violence of fire. The fiery furnace succeeded only in burning the fetters of the three young Hebrews and setting them free. Daniel 3, 25. Thus, it proved to be a blessing in disguise. They escaped the edge of the sword. David escaped Saul's malicious attacks, 1 Samuel 19, 9 and 10. Elijah escaped the murderous hatred of Jezebel. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 and 3. And Elijah escaped from the king of Syria. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 through 19. They won strength out of weakness. Many symbols of weakness are found in the annals of faith. Ethan, for instance, was left-handed, yet he slew the king of Moab. That's in Judges chapter 3, verses 12 to 22. Jael, a member of the weaker sex, killed Sisera with a tent peg. That's Judges 4.21. Gideon used fragile earth pitchers in the defeat of the Midianites. That's Judges chapter 7.20. And Samson used the jawbone of donkeys to slay a thousand Philistines. Judges 15.15. They all illustrated the truth that God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27. They became valiant in battle. Faith endowed men with strength beyond that was natural and enabled them to overcome in the faith of unsurmountable odds. They put to the fight the armies of aliens. Though often under unequipped and greatly outnumbered, the armies of Israel walked off with the victory to the confusion of the foe and the amazement of everyone else. Chapter 11, verse 35, women received their dead by resurrection. The widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17.23 and the women of Shunem, 2 Kings 4.34, are cases in point. But faith was another face. In addition to those who performed dazzling feats, there were those who endured intense suffering. God values the latter as much as the former. Because of their faith in the Lord, some were subjected to cruel torture. If they would have renounced Jehovah, they would have been released. But to them, it was better to die and be raised again to heavenly glory than to continue this life as a traitor to God. In the time of the Maccabees, a mother and her seven sons were put to death, one after the other, and the side of each other, by Antiochus Epiphanes. They refused to accept release that they might obtain a better resurrection, that is, better than a mere continuation of life on earth. There are seasons when faith shows itself in taking. There are seasons when it is witness and refusing. There is deliverance that faith embraces. There is a deliverance that faith rejects. They were tortured, not accepting deliverance. That was the sign and seal that they were faithful. There are hours when the strongest proof of faith is a swift rejection of the larger room. Chapter 11, verse 36. Others were mocked and flogged and were bound in prison. For faithfulness to God, 
Jeremiah endured all these forms of punishment. Jeremiah 20, 1-6. Joseph too was in prison because he would rather suffer than to sin. Genesis 39:20. Let's turn to chapter 11:37. They were stoned. Jesus reminded the scribes and the Pharisees that their ancestors had murdered Zechariah in this way between the sanctuary and the altar. Matthew 23:35. They were saw in two. Tradition saw that Manasseh used this method of executing Isaiah. They were tempted. This clause probably describes the tremendous pressure they were brought to bear on believers to compromise, to recant, to commit acts of sin, or in any way to deny their Lord. They were slain with the sword. Uriah the prophet paid his price for his faithful proclamation of God's message, the king Jehoiakim, Jeremiah 26, 23. But the expression here refers to the mass slaughter such as occurred in the times of Maccabees. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Instead, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, themselves accounted no better than goats or sheep. Nay, they like these reckon fit only for the slaughter. They suffered poverty, privation, and persecution. Chapter eleven thirty-eight. The world treated them as if they were not even worthy to live. But the Spirit of God bursts forth here with the interjection that actually it was other way around. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves on the earth, dispossessed of homes, separated from families, pursued like animals, expelled from society. They endured heat and cold, distress and hardship, but they would not deny their Lord. Turn your Bibles to 1139. God has borne witness to the faith of those Old Testament heroes. Yet they died before receiving the fulfillment of the promise. They did not live to see the advent of the long-awaited Messiah or to enjoy the blessing that would flow through his ministry. Let's turn to chapter 1140. God had reserved something better for us. He had arranged that they should not be made perfect apart from us. They never did enjoy a perfect conscience as far as sin was concerned. And they will not enjoy the full perfection of the glorified body in heaven until we're all caught up to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13, 18. The spirits of the Old Testament saints are already perfect in the presence of the Lord. Hebrews 12, 23. But their bodies will not be raised from among the dead until the Lord returns for his people. Then they will enjoy the perfection of resurrection glory. To put it another way, the Old Testament believers were not as privileged as we are. Yet think of their thrilling triumphs and tremendous trials. Think of their exploits and their endurance. They lived on the other side of the cross. We lived in full glory of the cross. Yet how do our lives compare to theirs? This is the convincing challenge of Hebrews 11. I'd like to finish by giving everyone a chance to know Jesus better. Make Jesus the Lord of your life. Prayer of salvation is our first real conversation with God. The prayer of salvation is the most important prayer you'll ever pray. When you're ready to become a Christian, you're ready to have our first real conversation with God. And these are the components. We acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God and that He came to the earth as a man in order to live the sinful life that we could not live. That He died in our place so that we would not have to pay the penalty we deserve. We confess our past life of sin, living for ourselves and not obeying God. 
We admit that we are ready to trust Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord. We ask Jesus to come into our heart, take up residence there, and begin living through us. It begins with faith in God. When we pray the prayer of salvation, we're letting God know we believe that His Word is true. By the faith that He has given us, we choose to believe in Him. The Bible tells us that without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Hebrews 11.6 So when we pray, asking God for the gift of salvation, we're exercising our free will to acknowledge that we believe in Him. That demonstration of faith pleases God because we have freely chosen to know Him. We are confessing our sin. When we pray the prayer of salvation, we're admitting that we've sinned. As the Bible says of everyone, saved through Christ alone, for all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. To sin is simply falling short of the mark, as an arrow that does not quite hit the bullseye. The glory of God that we fell short of is found only in Jesus Christ. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.6 so the prayer of salvation then recognizes that Jesus Christ is the only human who ever lived without sin. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 What we are doing is we are professing faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. With Christ as our standard of perfection, we're now acknowledging him as God. Agreeing with the Apostle John that in the beginning was the Word, Jesus Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. John chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. Because God could only accept a sinless sacrifice because He knew that we could not possibly accomplish that. He sent His Son to die for us and pay the eternal price. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's John 3.16. Listen, if you want to say it today and mean it with your heart, don't wait a moment longer to start your new life with Jesus Christ. Remember, this prayer is not a magical formula. You are simply expressing your heart to God. And if you'd like to do that, Pray this prayer with me. Father, I know that I have broken your laws and my sins have separated me from you. I am truly sorry and I now want to turn away from my past sinful life towards you. Please forgive me and help me avoid sinning again. I believe that your son, Jesus Christ, died for my sins, was resurrected from the dead, is alive, and hears my prayers today. I invite Jesus to become the Lord of my life, to rule and reign in my heart from this day forward. Please send your Holy Spirit to help me obey you and to do your will for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So now you've prayed this and you're probably thinking, I prayed it, now what happens? If you prayed this prayer of salvation with true conviction in your heart, you are now a follower of Jesus Christ. This is a fact. Whether or not you feel any different, you are. Some religious systems may lead you to believe that you might feel something like a warm glow, a tingling, or some mystical experience. In fact, you might and you might not. If you have prayed the prayer of salvation and you meant it, you are now a follower of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that your eternal salvation is secure. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's Romans 10.9. 
So welcome to the family of God. We encourage you to find a local Bible-based church where you can fellowship with other believers and grow in the knowledge of God through His Word, the Bible. This ministry is listener-supported. If you feel that you have benefited from this message from God, please consider helping to support this ministry and give a gift of any amount so we can continue to spread the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit on this platform. Go to JesusIsTheVoiceOfTruth.com and may the Lord richly bless you, your family, and friends. Until next time, God bless. And remember, Jesus is the voice of truth. I hope you enjoyed today's program. If you have any prayer requests or questions about Jesus is the voice of truth, we encourage you to email us at voiceoftruth411 at gmail.com or visit our website at jesusisthevoiceoftruth.com. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to being with you next time. Have a blessed day.